Hey there, Corona, what was it like in eastern China? You were a thousand miles away. Now Fox News makes you seem so scary. Yes, they do. Donald Trump might send a check or two. I swear it's true. Even my liberal friends are posting about it. Hey there, Corona, social distance is now a thing. CDC's recommendations, but I'll be honest, I've been doing this my whole life, bro. We're all buying less, all by the truckload. I don't think it helps, though. Oh, this COVID quarantine. What you just heard was a tune by Tennessee Builds that was released on their YouTube channel about COVID-19. From what I can tell, Tennessee Build seems to be a building company, but they've released this song about a topic that is everywhere this week. So welcome to the second week of the Hyperallergic Podcast focusing on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. And in cities all across the world, people are being asked to stay home. So that's what we did. For this episode, I connected with news editor Jasmine Weber in Los Angeles, reporter Valentina Delicia in Miami, and Hakeem Bashara here in Brooklyn to talk about what we're hearing from our sources around the world. You're going to have to forgive us for the sound quality this episode, as we're trying out new ways of recording, but we promise we're going to improve every week until this is all over, even if none of us are quite sure when that's going to be. So here goes. Those of you who are regular listeners will recognize the voice of our news editor, Jasmine Weber. She's joining us from Los Angeles, where she's hunkering down for the pandemic. She's going to get us up to speed. So as the news editor here at Hyperallergic, I've been working closely with obviously you and the rest of the team to really keep our finger on the pulse of the COVID-19 pandemic, whether or not that's related to the art world or how it affects the global economy and international politics. When it comes to the art world, one of the biggest news stories that we've seen come out of the past couple weeks this week in particular, is museum leaders writing to U.S. Congress and Senate leaders requesting that Congress allocate at least $4 billion to nonprofit museums in the United States. They wrote a really compelling letter to Senate and Congress leaders, including Speaker Pelosi, asking them to consider the way that this economic crisis is really affecting the art world, saying that nationwide museums are losing at least $33 million a day due to closures. So this letter came from leaders of associations representing not only art museums, but also botanical gardens and zoos. Uh, Nonprofit museums across the board are being hit really hard. Part of that is impacted by the fact that they rely so heavily on the philanthropy model, and so many of these super wealthy, high-powered donors are no longer making these large donations. They don't have the same resources as we're seeing the stock market crashing. And it's really revealing a lot of the flaws of this philanthropy-based donation system that so many of the museums that we consider integral to our society rely on. That's such Um, a great point. That's such a great point. Because, you know, of course, at the end of the day, as much as they sort of like laud their private donors, they're turning to the public in order to help save them. Precisely. 
from past reports that we've done on the Whitney Museum and the Museum of Modern Art, we've seen so many protesters and advocates really speak to the fact that museums do rely too heavily on their donors and they allow their programming and they allow their function to be a little bit too catered to the wealthy elite. We've seen many advocates saying that museums belong to the people and they should be in control of the people funded by the people. And this is in a way backing up their case. These museum leaders are now asking that $4 billion be sent to museums because they're estimating that 30% of the museums that are now closing their doors because of the pandemic might not reopen. This might not affect them. Incredible number. It may not affect the big museums like Smithsonian Institute's affiliates or places like the Museum of Modern Art, but the hometown museums in parts of the country that don't get the same funding as these institutions just very well may be severely affected. And that will impact thousands, hundreds of thousands of workers across the United States. On Tuesday morning, the Metropolitan Museum of Art launched the hashtag Congress Save Culture, supporting this request and asking that Congress consider these $4 billion to be a part of the pending $2 trillion stimulus package that they're currently debating. In terms of the leaders that have signed on to it, not only does it have the support of the Mets leaders, the memo that was originally sent to the Congress and Senate leaders was signed by Laura Lott, the president and CEO of the American Alliance of Museums, and Christine Anagnos, the executive director of the Association of Art Museum Directors. So these are two major institutions who really set the stage for museums across the United States are clearly asking for help. Um, I think the situation is unprecedented and we're really going to see a lot of the underbelly of the art world really come to the forefront as these museums are going to have to be a bit more transparent with their constituents. So now that we're on the topic of museums and how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting them, I actually want to invite one of our staff writers, Valentina Delicia, to speak about an article she wrote last week about hourly workers and how they're being impacted by these museum closures and, and the worries that they have about how they'll survive. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Jasmine, for bringing that up. And just so everybody knows, I'm podcasting from my house in my parents' house, really, in Miami, Florida, where I'm lucky enough to be with family and kind of echoing what Rog said about our sound quality, but also very, very happy and grateful that we can all be together discussing these things. I personally worked on an article that focuses on how hourly and part-time workers across really the cultural sector with a focus on some New York City institutions are really struggling because they, a lot of them, you know, are, are freelancers. So a lot of museum educators are actually hired as contractors, which is, if you think about it, a step below even part-time workers. They really are kind of on-call employees. And those are the ones that are seeing that their contracts that they maybe thought would run through the school year, the academic school year, are being not honored through that period. So it's really kind of been a familiar fate for many of these cultural workers in, for example, the Guggenheim, Brian Cook, who's part of one of the Guggenheim Museum's recently unionized workers, said that the Guggenheim won't actually pay anyone who is hired as a contractor or freelancer past the 29th. So, you know, a lot of what we've been hearing 
from cultural workers is an uncertainty about the compensation policies in these museums. There's kind of a fear of not knowing. And in the case of the Guggenheim, it seems that they are willing to pay part-time and full-time workers to a certain date, to April 12, I believe. But, you know, a lot of these museum educators, they're really, they're contractors and they won't be paid past March. So it's a real concern. Absolutely. Now, have you been hearing some of the anxieties? Like, what have some other people been telling you, Valentina? Like, are are people looking for new jobs? I mean, what are their different attitudes? You know, Rog, there's a sense of taking this day by day, which I think we're all doing. But the cultural workers I spoke to basically said, I don't know what I'm going to do. Certainly a lot of them, you know, as an example, I have a friend in LA who said she's now looking for tutoring jobs. There's a lot of online tutoring for SAT uh, opportunities like this, but finding work within their specific field, which is a really highly specialized field of museum education, just as one example, it's going to be really tricky while these museums remain closed. And like Jasmine said, while some of them may not be able to reopen. So what has the mood been in Miami, Valentina? Because, of course, the mayor of Miami quite prominently tested positive for (laughs) COVID-19, and that was quite a big story. Gosh, you know, dystopia is really the word that sums it up. I can't tell you how strange it is to go back home to Miami and not be able to go to the beach because the beaches are closed. There were photos circulating of, uh, I think it was about a week ago, 10 days ago, people, massive gathering at the beach, people who were supposed to be working from home, just going out, laying out their towels and bringing their speakers. And there's kind of the sense of, no, you know, we're we're not on vacation. We are isolating. So for me, it's been very strange. Certainly, I feel lucky, like I said, to be with family. I feel lucky that I'm able to take a walk. My house is in a very residential neighborhood, so I'm able to go out and go for a run. But uh, around these parts, so I'm in Surfside, Florida, and uh, around these parts, you really don't see a lot of people outside. And then, like I said, the strangest thing is my profound association of Miami with the beach that's kind of lost. And it's really kind of taken an emotional toll on me, I have to say. And how about you, Jasmine, in Los Angeles? Have you been uh, observing anything or what has been the general mood? Yeah, so here in LA, I've definitely taken social distancing to an extreme. Riding out these two weeks, pretty much indoors, not really going to the grocery store or anything like that. I have taken a few walks around the neighborhood and there have definitely been a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people are going stir crazy in their houses. I'm, I've had to cross the street a few times when I've seen people like jogging in my direction or like out walking their dog. But for the most part, it really does seem like a lot of people are taking it seriously. The area that I'm in right now, Encino, actually has the highest concentration of COVID-19 cases in L.A. County. Um, so that's part of my biggest concern. Are there been any indication why that is? I'm not really sure. It might be about testing and about access at the hospitals. It's not necessarily one of the more crowded areas of L.A. County, for sure. There are definitely denser spots. So I don't really know why that is. Good question. And Hakeem, you're in Brooklyn like I am. What have you been seeing in your little corner of the borough? Oh, it's um, it's grim. But on the other hand, I have to say, I'm in um, Williamsburg in, Bro- in Brooklyn, and um, you have McCarran Park there. And I took a walk on the weekend, and McCarran Park is full of people. Like nothing happened. Right. And I, and I found that troubling. 
Yep, absolutely. And those who don't know, uh, Hakeem Bashara, one of our staff reporters, is also joining us for the podcast. And I, I know there was actually a number of memes going around and people joking about McCarran Park and how packed it was this weekend. So I've been seeing people circulating those jokes. And unfortunately, it's not very funny, but it is happening. Yeah. Hakeem, do you have anything you'd like to add? Well, I can tell you from my experience as a reporter that I'm getting tons of emails about online online exhibitions, uh, openings online, and so on. And just as in normal times, I don't have time to go see everything. I also don't have time to open all those emails and see those online exhibitions, I have to admit. I don't know what your experience has been. <laughs> I think when you're in news, your life becomes a lot busier. But I feel the same way. As much as I'd like to see some of these things, I'm not really getting caught up on my Netflix or anything else at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we're here, all of us are still working. But in times of crisis, on a personal note, uh, this is for me, I mean, not only for me, I think it's uh, quite universal. You do resort to baking. And this is just another bad reminder that I'm really terrible at bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Jasmine, Valentina, have you? I feel the same way. I've been trying. I've been experimenting with my chia pudding recipe and other things to get by. But have either of you done anything of interest that way? Well, I was going to say that I actually am not allowed to cook here in my house in Florida because, you know, I recently traveled. So, and my stepdad, who's also here, had also recently traveled. So my mom is doing all of the cooking and we desperately want to help her. But, you know, we can't because just as a safety measure, as a precaution, we're trying to stay away from the kitchen. But anyway, I've been having a lot of really great home cooking, but I do feel bad for my poor mother. (laughs) Jasmine? Yeah, I'll say I actually have unleashed these recipes inside of me that I never knew existed. I really have been experimenting with um, the first day that I got to L.A., I did one grocery run, and that was the last time that I've been in public. And so I've been really experimenting with like different pastas, different spicy peppers, and I've Normally, I also wouldn't be cooking meat if I was at my apartment in Brooklyn, but I've really learned how to season meat. Um, so it's important. I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely making the most of the little bit of free time. Like you guys mentioned, we're all still working and it's there's a lot to keep up with as journalists. But in that little bit of downtime that we do get at night, I've kind of made it a nightly ritual to spend like an hour or two cooking, which is already way more than I would give myself if I were in Brooklyn still in my apartment by myself. And then just trying to sit down for like an hour or two to watch something that I wouldn't normally watch. I originally started with trash TV, but I'm trying to actually make it something that's Slightly intellectual. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, Hakeem, before we continue with you, I just wanted to ask Jasmine and Valentina, since both of you recently flew, Valentina, you flew last week, end of last week, and Jasmine a little bit before that. And I'm just wondering, is there anything you observed in the airports that you think people would want to know? Yeah. So one thing that I found really odd when I was flying, and I don't know if this has changed since then, and it, it was a pretty small detail that I don't know if most people would pick up on. I found it really odd that the flight attendants were still pouring out drinks. I thought that they were going to be handing yes. people individual cans, but they were still pouring out drinks and like kind of sharing cans 
between passengers. And I did not drink anything on the plane. I sat on the plane for six and a half hours until I got to LA. And I was like, I'm not leaving the seat for anything. Um, A lot of people were still moving around, kind of like stretching their legs in the aisle. I definitely felt like there was a bubble of anxiety around me. The flight was about half full and you could see a ton of people with gloves, a lot of people with masks, and everyone was wiping their seats down. But it was actually a little bit more normal than I had expected it to be. I had hoped that the airline was going to take a few more preventative measures in terms of that sort of hygiene, like not sharing drinks. And then also they were having everyone still reach in to grab their own snacks out of the barrel, <laughs> um, which I had kind of hoped yeah. that they would hand them to us ourselves. So Yeah, things are actually surprisingly not as different as I kind of hoped that they would be. I would definitely advise anyone getting on a plane to bring gloves and wipes. Yeah, jumping in on that. So Jasmine actually left to LA a couple of days before I left to Florida. So I went ahead and asked her for advice for my trip. And she said she was holding on to her Clorox wipes like it was a newborn child. And so I I really took Jasmine's advice and I ran with it. You know, I brought my own giant cylinder tube of Clorox wipes and I wiped everything down. Like the flight attendants were passing out bags of pretzels and bananas and I wiped those down with Clorox wipes. I also wiped down my seat. I wiped down my little tray table. I wiped down the handle of the bathroom when I went to the bathroom, which was terrifying. And, you know, people were definitely looking at me with a combination of like awe and jealousy that I had all these Clorox wipes. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. I feel like I got a lot more attention from other passengers than, than I bargained for. But I was also surprised like Jasmine that there weren't more measures in place. I mean, when I went through security, the airport was kind of empty, but I swear the 10 people who were at the airport were all crammed into the security line. And I just kind of thought, can't you space us out a little bit? I mean, we have the space. So it was a little bit disappointing, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. As we know, the trays and and seats on airplanes are usually full of germs, which I tend to wipe down anyway. So I can imagine taking extra precaution during these times. So Akeem, do you want to fill us in on what you're hearing? Yeah. Well, you know, last week... NADA, the New Dealers, um, the New Art Dealers Association, representing small and mid-sized galleries in in uh, New York, they released a petition now signed by more than ten thousand people, calling for relief for small and mid-sized galleries who are not really considered in the cities in New York cities and New York states aid programs or COVID aid programs for small businesses these days because they don't consider freelance workers, because they are asking for galleries to prove that they had a 25% decrease in uh, profits since the outbreak, which is hard when you have, when you're working with uh, long-term invoices and so on. And what I'm hearing from, from galleries is that their major difficulty is paying rent these days. And people are talking about a rent strike, talking to their landlords and saying, we can't do it. And according to the laws, New York state laws these days or Cuomo's instructions, you can't, you know, a landlord cannot evict you if you don't pay your rent in the next 60 days, right? Right. So I think we're going to see some of that. Galleries are unable to pay their rent. Right. I can imagine. That's a good point. Absolutely. That's perhaps on the horizon. One of the things I've been paying attention to during this recent pandemic has been the music. 
Musicians around the world always find inspiration in some of the most unlikely places. And this time is no different. I don't want to pretend all these songs have some unified meaning or something. I don't really think they do. But they do tell different stories. And I love stories. So I picked five songs for this segment, in addition, of course, to the one you heard in the introduction, that I thought represented a good spectrum of the English language versions I've been hearing. And they all stood out. The first is by Hong Kong singer Kathy Mack, who created a coronavirus-themed parody of Natalie Imbruglia's Torn. Have a listen. During SARS, I was just a child. Didn't seem to know, seemed to care about the virus running wild. But now I'm freaking out, alright. I sterilize, I sanitize. My hands are always freaking dry. There's just so many things that I can't touch, I'm torn. Then there's this one which appears to be created by mostly African international students at Laosheng University in China. It's been circulating a lot on Chinese channels. And this song, as you can imagine, is probably going to be very important right now because cases in Africa appear to be on the rise and it's important to raise awareness there. We are strong together, we fight together, defeat Corona to the end. Oh, yeah. And of course, celebrities are doing their part. And in addition to a 25 celebrity rendition of John Lennon's Imagine that was everywhere for a split second, there's JoJo's remix of her own song, Leave Get Out. Check it out. CDC laid it out for you. Come on, I know you're not dumb To go behind my back and hit the bar Shows no immature, you really are Keep exposure to a minimum And maybe the most wow version is by Sophia Rowan of West Orange, New Jersey, who says she created this quarantine song to combat boredom. We're in quarantine yeah, the corona did us really dirty Get sleep and stay clean It's already in the town and it'll probably get around But the final song is probably the most endearing in my opinion Because it was made after the Chino Valley Unified School District's annual choral festival was cancelled so the students recorded their individual a cappella portions of Over the Rainbow in their own homes. And the magic of editing did the rest. Some other stuff that is on our radar right now at Hyperallergic is the closure of the San Francisco Art Institute. On March 23rd, they announced that 
they would, after giving all of their diplomas to their students who are graduating this semester, along with wrapping up all of their digital courses for the spring, they will likely not be reopening in the fall. That's heartbreaking. I mean, it's literally one of the oldest art schools in the country. And I mean, it has a very like, you know, fabled history, of course. Yeah, so SFAI is about 150 years old. They're obviously a well-known organization. And one thing that Prague brought up this morning in our news meeting that we have every day um, is the fact that the institution actually has a Diego Rivera mural. Even in San Francisco, actually, when we think about the WPA mural at George Washington High School, the potential destruction of that mural created so much uh, calamity. And I think that if the school is to close at the end of the semester, as they're expecting to right now, the fate of this Diego Rivera mural is going to be at the top of people's minds. I think that that's going to be something that we should be really concerned with about preserving this piece of heritage. Absolutely. I'm worried that uh, we're going to hear about more closures of schools because this is an issue that people are not talking about enough. And I'm only starting to hear more about it. You know, schools in um, in the U.S., let me talk about New York schools, rely a lot on foreign students. And these days, according to the immigration authorities' requirements, online learning or online teaching does not qualify you to get a student visa in the U.S. Interesting. So new students are not getting student visas to the U.S. And students who flew home and are going to be home for a while and their visa might, you know, come towards its end or expire or something, will have trouble renewing their visa. And they haven't adapted the laws to this uh, new situation. So uh, we're going to hear more about that, I feel. I think that's a really good point. I think we're going to see this really impact a lot of educational institutions that were already financially on the precipice, really. And of course, one thing we haven't even brought up was today the news that Maurice Berger, the critic and writer and curator, it appears he may have passed away from COVID-19. We're just waiting for final confirmation. Um, but a number of his friends have already been circulating news that that's the case, which is particularly shocking because six, eight days ago on Instagram, he had a post that that it seemed like everything was normal and you know he was he was out and about and doing other things and um, this news of course is going to crush a lot of people in Baltimore and beyond about this really terrible news uh, Jasmine are there anything you think we should be looking out for as signs of like what's on the horizon during this uh, pandemic yes I actually think that something that will affect the art world most definitely and, and many of the people who work in the art world but something that is going to affect society as a whole is obviously the overwhelming of the health system one thing that i've been really thinking about is the way that this pandemic has really brought to the forefront issues of disability rights and ableism the way that the government has responded to communities of disabled and chronically ill people as well as the elderly um, that I think that collectively we need to be more cognizant of as we think about the ways that our health system is being affected and the people who rely on it every day. Recently in Washington state, a group of nonprofits filed a federal complaint expressing their grave concerns about discrimination in the medical system. And according to the news source Bloomberg, the Washington State Department of Health actually distributed guidelines last week recommending that triage teams transfer patients who already have cognitive and physical disabilities to outpatient care. And I'm really concerned with the way that 
public health officials and government officials have have really treated these communities as disposable. And I think that so many of us have family and friends and many of our listeners and readers are concerned for their own health and how they're going to maintain their health and their community health during this time. And I think it's really important for us all to advocate for the people who might have disabilities, whether invisible or physical. Absolutely. And I do want to also mention, you know, a lot of people, uh, Kara Ober, who's one of the contributors to Hyperallergic and also a critic based in Baltimore, she just did an Instagram post yesterday mentioning that she's in the hospital after getting chills and, and developing shortness of breath. And the part that she said that I thought was really shocking for, at least for me, she said that she finally was able to get a test for COVID-19, but she has to wait five days for the results. Which blows my mind that, like, how are you supposed to control a pandemic when people are waiting five days for results? It's it doesn't it it doesn't make a a lot of sense to me, but I'm not a health professional. So I asked Anthony, one of our contributors in Rome, to send us a little audio postcard from life in Rome, which, as many people have been saying, might be about a week or two ahead of what's going to what's happening here in New York. So. I asked him to just let us know, what is life in Rome like? So let's have a listen. Hi, this is Anthony Meinlotti. I'm a writer and historian living in Rome. I'm coming to you from about two weeks into your future. I went into quarantine on March the 10th, and I've been here in my apartment ever since, except for quick trips to the supermarket. Quarantine didn't feel too different from my normal life at first since I work from home. But as the days passed and the infection curve went up, the government began to place increasing restrictions on my freedom of movement. Now, I can't go more than 200 meters away from the front door of my building, and even then, only to go for food shopping or to the pharmacy. I've been reading in the American press about people wondering if they can go jogging or biking as long as they keep the necessary social distance. I think, of course you can't. You're going to get the virus and spread it. But I didn't think that two weeks ago. It's funny how seeing army convoys of trucks carrying coffins to cemetery crematoria changes your priorities. I used to worry about the Raphael exhibition not opening again. Now I worry about making it to the end of April without getting sick. Please do yourselves a favor and just stay home. Don't wait for government order. Stay home. So now it sounds like in Rome things are definitely under lockdown. So any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Well, I wanted to share on my end a story that I thought was, you know, hope hope inspiring to say the least. It seems that a group of art handlers and preparators based at the Whitney Museum have gathered some of the supplies that they use at their job as art handlers and are shipping them off to Columbia hospitals because, you know, some of these supplies used for art installations can actually be used by medical workers as well. So I spoke to one of these organizers, Gregory Reynolds, who is a preparator at the Whitney Museum, and he explained how some of the equipment used for installing art can be repurposed by medical workers. So we'll hear a little bit from him now. How long have you been a preparator? Well, I've been at the Whitney since 2008, 12, 13 years. 13 years, wow. And can you tell me, I'm curious to hear from you, what kind of supplies do art handlers and preparators at museums use that could be translated to medical equipment specifically for the pandemic? Well, we we typically use a lot of supplies in the process of installing a show or handling art that are similar if not identical to what hospitals use we wear clean powder-free 
you know, sterile, powder-free, nitrile gloves so that the oil from our hands doesn't get on artwork. And we buy, you know, we buy those in uh, heavy supply. You know, each box contains 100, and I think we had, uh, you know, somewhere between 50 and 100 boxes unopened. And then as well, we have, uh, once in a while, we are either dealing with an artwork that we don't want to breathe on or... Uh, dust that we don't want to breathe in so we have a small supply of the uh, n95 masks we have booties so if we're walking on a, a nice white platform we're not tracking our footprints right. and we had some tyvek suits what are those um, well it's just like a, a like a hazmat suit you know mm-hmm. like a white disposable zip up overall basically coverall that, you know, if we're doing, typically for us, if we're doing something or some work that's really dirty in order to protect our clothes. Right. So those are all things that are similar, I guess, if not identical to what hospitals would use. I was really touched by uh, my colleague that sent the photo after he had gone in to pack up the supplies. You know, I had to, I had to stop and sort of like, uh, you know, just reflect on, on, what was going on, you know, the, like the note on the box is beautiful with love from the Whitney Museum. And yeah. and yeah, it just seemed like it was something that I wanted to, you know, share. So I think this is a really, really nice story. I mean, from what I understand, the organizers right now, the project is limited to the Whitney, but they've reached out to MoMA, to the Met, and to the Met Breuer to do the same. And um, the posts on Instagram have been shared widely, and I think it's only a matter of time until art handlers and museums kind of around the country hopefully start donating some of their supplies for medical workers that, as we know, desperately, desperately need them at the moment. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm Hrag Bartanyan, and we're going to end with this new version of the classic Italian song, Volare, from 1958, which went viral shortly after someone uploaded it amid the COVID-19 outbreak in Italy. Warms your heart a little. Penso che un sogno così non ritorni mai più Mi dipingevo le mani e la faccia di blu Poi d'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito E incominciavo a volare nel cielo infinito Volare Oh Cantare Oh oh, Nel blu Dipinto di blu Felice Di stare lassù E volavo Volavo felice in alto del sole ed ancora più su Mentre il mondo pian piano spariva lontano laggiù Una musica dolce suonava soltanto per me